From 1948 to 1973, there was a tremendous amount of conventional warfare in the Middle East. The Arabs thought they were pretty good. They thought they could use conventional force. And they tried it against the Israelis, against each other. And what they figured out during that period of time is actually we're not great at this. The two outliers, the two guys who don't get it, Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, you know, fight losing war after losing war and wind up getting overthrown in the end because they don't ever get it. Hey, welcome to another episode of the Modern War Institute podcast. I'm John Ambo, editorial director at MWI, and my guest in this episode is Ken Pollack. He is a military analyst and the author of a brand new book called Armies of Sand that examines the question of the effectiveness of Arab militaries. Specifically, and to be blunt, it grapples with the question of why they have really not performed very well on the battlefield. As you'll hear though, it's a bit more complicated than that. And there's arguably nobody better equipped than my guest in this episode to discuss the issue and also to offer some thoughts on what it all means for regional stability and security or for U.S. strategy in the Middle East. Before we get to that conversation, just a few quick notes. First, if you aren't yet following MWI on social media, find us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn. It is the absolute best way to stay up to date on all of the new articles, podcast episodes, and research we're publishing every day. And second, as always, what you hear in this episode are the views of the participants and don't represent those of West Point, the Army, or any other agency of the U.S. government. All right, here's my conversation with Ken Pollack. Ken Pollack, thanks very much for sitting down and and uh, chatting with us about, I guess we'll talk about a few things, but mainly your new book, Armies of Sand. Um, first, by way of background, I wonder if you can kind of give listeners um, a little bit of brief biography on, on kind of what brought you to the point where you decided, let's write this book. Thanks very much, John, for having me on. I'm a big fan of the Modern War Institute, so this is a real honor for me. Thank you. Um, with regards to myself, I started out life as a military analyst at CIA. Um, yeah, this is back during the Cold War. I'm kind of old. Uh, and I confess, in both high school and college, I had mostly done U.S. Soviet stuff because, of course, late Cold War, that's what we really did. Uh, but when I got recruited by CIA and I knew that I wanted to be a military analyst there, uh, I got offers from a variety of different offices. And I said to myself, you know, I should go where the wars are. Even though I've always been working U.S. Soviet stuff, the wars are in the Middle East. And so I picked up the offer from the Middle East shop there. They assigned me to the Iran-Iraq military account uh, right at the end of the Iran-Iraq war. And the rest has really been history for me. I stayed there for about eight years. I did two tours at the National Security Council working Persian Gulf affairs. I was uh, one of Bill Clinton's directors for the Persian Gulf. Uh, after I left government, I was at Brookings for about 15 years. And then I came over here to AEI about a year and a half or so ago and have been working political military issues in the Middle East ever since. And this book, Armies of Sand, in many ways is the culmination of about 25 years worth of work. There are periods of time in there when I was very heavily devoted to, to working on this particular topic and this particular project. Other times when I was working on other things, obviously when you're the NSC director for the Persian Gulf, uh, you can't really spend too much time digging into Arab military history. But nevertheless, it was always in the back of my head. And whenever I would go out to the region, whenever I would speak to people, I was always collecting information related to this project. So at what point, uh, you, you, know, you mentioned that this is sort of 25 years in the making. At what point did you... Um, I guess, have this sort of coherent thought that this is going to be a book one day. 
Yeah, interesting question. The first time I really thought about the question, you know, again, I had been working around Iraq, and uh, in particular, right after the Gulf War, uh, one of the big issues during the Gulf War was how how well were the Iraqis actually going to fight? Because their equipment looked very good: T seventy twos, BMP ones, two S threes, G five GHN forty fives, MiG twenty nines. Right? They look really good. And before the Gulf War, there were a lot of people who didn't know anything about the Iraqis and just looked at the equipment and said, boy, these guys are going to give us a run for our money. And then there were folks like myself who actually knew how they fought, had seen them fight during the Iran-Iraq War, and knew that these guys weren't very good, and knew that they had a lot of problems, and those problems manifested themselves in certain ways. And after the Gulf War, I remember reading the draft of a paper written by one of my colleagues in the Syrian military. And what was really striking was that he was talking about the Syrians having all of the same problems as the Iraqis. And I said to myself, you know, there's something going on here, right? There's got to be a reason that these two militaries have all the same problems. Not sure what, right? Uh, Was the problem the culture? Was the problem the fact that they're both nasty dictatorships? Was the fact that they're third world countries? What's going on here? And it wasn't until I got to, to grad school and went back and got my Ph.D., that I started thinking about that question in a much more focused way and decided to write one of my major papers in grad school on it. And eventually it became my doctoral thesis. There was so much there. It became such a fascinating question. And the work that I was having to do to really address it in a kind of thorough, meticulous fashion made it clear that this was a book, right? Your PhD thesis is a a book manuscript, and that's how it started out. And the more work I did on it, the more I realized how interesting the topic was and the more contribution I could make, hopefully, to U.S. national security more broadly with it. So you used kind of in the introduction the Six-Day War, uh, 1967, as, I guess, kind of a framing mechanism. Um, Is that really, if you're trying to kind of discern patterns in military effectiveness within um, Arab states, armies, is is that the logical kind of starting point? For me, it was because I think for most people, it is the quintessential Arab-Israeli war. When most people think of the Arab-Israeli wars, what they tend to think of is the Six-Day War, this stunning, surprising Israeli military victory, one of the greatest military victories of modern history. And it does represent all of the salient problems that Arab militaries have been experiencing from the Second World War to the present in their clearest illustration, right? The problems from politicization, the problems from underdevelopment, the problems from their educational and cultural systems, they are all fully on display in that war. And that's one of the reasons why the Israelis just roll, right? Another part of it is that the Israelis are really quite good, but it is the matching of a first-rate military against uh, a set of militaries which have huge problems that produces this stunning, lopsided Israeli victory. And so for me, it was useful to start there, both because, again, I think most people, when they think about the Arab-Israeli wars, and for that matter, when they think about warfare in the Middle East, it really is the Six-Day War that they're thinking about. And I also thought it was a great place to start because it did illustrate those problems in the starkest relief, made it the clearest and therefore a great starting point to ask the question of why is this going on, 
right? And why are all three of these Arab militaries uh, experiencing the same sets of problems, even though there are important differences among them as well? So the book, you know, and one of the fascinating things about this, I, you know, I find um, from a from a sort of process and structure uh, perspective is, you know, it's it's a it's a weighty book. It's you know, there's more than a few pages in it, um, but piecing it all together in a way that's kind of coherent uh, is can be a challenge. And and you did so by breaking it into four parts: um, Soviet doctrine, politicization, underdevelopment, and culture. Um, you started by saying that you kind of uh, came up thinking about things from a from a U.S. Soviet Cold War perspective, um, and that then you you kind of characterize it as a leap then to move to the Middle East. But there is clearly some linkages there, um, as evidenced by the fact that you used Soviet doctrine as one of the four parts. Um, can you talk a little bit about how how the Cold War influenced the trajectory of of Arab states militaries? Sure, obviously. It had a multitude of different effects at different levels. At one level, you had tremendous superpower involvement in the Middle East as a result of the Cold War. If you want to be more specific about it, obviously the oil of the region is what attracted both superpowers. We were interested in the Middle East because we wanted the oil for first our allies and then eventually for ourselves. The Soviets were interested in large measure because they wanted to deny us that oil. So the resources, the oil resources of the region attract the superpowers. They then play a major role in the geopolitics of the region, right? One of the, one of the most striking things about the Arab-Israeli wars is that they're never really brought to, to fruition, right? The, the victor is never allowed to culminate, to achieve the maximum extent of what he could because the superpowers inevitably descend. You know, in 1948, it's the British who stopped the Israeli offensives. In 1956, it's the Americans. In 1967, uh, eventually, it's both the U.S. and the Soviets and the U.N. In 73, again, it's the U.S. and the Soviets. So there is that very important layer of geopolitics from both sides, which shape everyone's strategy, right? Going into 1973, the Egyptians and Syrians fully expect that the superpowers will shut down the war. In fact, they're banking on it. Their whole hope is that they can win a quick victory against an unprepared Israel and then get the Russians to shut down the fighting and prevent the Israelis from mounting a counteroffensive. And of course, that fails. It's one of the reasons why they wind up losing the war militarily. So first, there's that geopolitical element. But of course, you then go beyond that. The superpowers were the major uh, armorers of these two sides. They provided the weaponry. They took a stake in it because they and everyone else in the world saw these wars as testing grounds for the quality of their weapons and their prestige was at stake. And of course, the piece that I'm most interested in in this book, both superpowers and some of their allies also played a major role in trying to improve the quality of their clients in the region. Now, the Israelis pretty much do it on their own. And, you know, one of the more interesting things, which I don't get into too much in this book, because it's a book mostly focused on the Arabs, the Israelis ultimately borrow from the Wehrmacht. They borrow from Nazi Germany, which is kind of, you know, one of the great ironies of history, but they kind of teach themselves. The Arabs learn heavily first from the Soviets, then from us. And in fact, that's probably a little bit too pat because initially they start out as Western colonial armies. And so they've got a little bit of the Western method to go in. Then they pick up a little of the Soviets. Then they pick up uh, more from us going on. 
there is this deliberate effort on the part of all of the great powers to try to improve the quality of their forces. And again, one of the really striking things that I bring out in the book is the frustration of all of the great powers. You know, we've had a generation, maybe more, of Americans who have tried to train up the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Saudis, uh, the Kuwaitis, the Bahrainis, the Omanis, the Emiratis, who are the ones who seem to actually be getting it right these days. All these different Middle Eastern militaries, Arab militaries that the U.S. has been trying to train. And, you know, you talk to guys who go over there and you talk to the to the training missions over there and you just get a list of frustrations endlessly of how difficult it is to do so. And, you know, we've seen in combat our ability to greatly improve their military capabilities are very, very limited. And one of the really fascinating things is the Russians, the Soviets, had the same frustrations and would make the same complaints about the Egyptians and the Syrians and the Iraqis and the Libyans that we have about the Egyptians and the Iraqis and the Jordanians and these other countries as well. And the same for the British and the French. Everyone has the same set of issues. And again, that's why you've got to look beyond the training that they're getting from foreign countries. That really isn't the problem. Now, you can say that all these countries have failed to adapt their own training methods to what their Arab clients can do. That, I think, is a valid criticism. But I think that one of the things that really stands out and that the book brings out is that it's not the fault of the American doctrine or the Soviet doctrine or the British doctrine or anybody else's doctrine. That's not what's going on here. So then, presumably, it's one of these other sort of big topics that you cover in, in these parts, whether it's culture or politicization or underdevelopment, um, which of those, you know, and I, and I hesitate to ask a question that asks you to simplify this too much, but which of those has sort of the greatest explaining power in your in your opinion? Sure. And yeah, I'll, I'll add the same caveat, which is the reason that this is a big book is I try to take a great deal of care with all of this stuff and present things in all their complexity and nuances. The bottom line is, politicization does have an impact and an important impact in certain areas. Underdevelopment has a big impact, important in certain areas. But the most important of all really does turn out to be the cultural issue. That's the thing that has been most problematic for Arab armies, air forces, navies, time after time. When you look at the real problems that have led to their consistent military defeats or consistent military underachievement, because there have been times when they've won, they've just never won as much as the material balance would suggest that they ought to have. It really is these cultural factors that are the great limiting issue out there. And worth noting that you know some of the most interesting recent work on the economics of the Arab world, stuff done by the UN uh, Development uh, Agency on the uh, knowledge gap in the Arab world, the Arab development reports, these famous doc- documents that have come out over the last 15, 16 years, they've more or less found the exact same thing with regard to Arab economies, that it is the same set of cultural factors expressed through the educational system that are the prime limiting element on Arab entrepreneurship and economic development as they are on Arab militaries in modern combat. Did you struggle with, um, as you're sort of writing this and reaching some of these conclusions with... um, was there sort of a voice inside your head at any point saying, 
no, it's not appropriate to attribute these failures to culture or something that, you know, I have to be really careful talking about this issue. Absolutely. Um, you know, look, I'm, I'm just a dumb military analyst. Hmm. And one of the things that I learned as a military analyst is you just go looking for the truth, regardless of whether it's politically correct or not. That said, if you're going to write a book, if you're going to publish it, you better pay attention to the political correctness because you don't want to start offending people. Um, and that was that was a really difficult set of issues for me to reconcile in the book. I had to spend a lot of time really understanding what culture is and isn't. I had to spend a lot of time laying out for the reader what culture is and isn't, what I mean by culture, what Arab culture looks like. I was acutely aware of the fact that I'm not a cultural anthropologist. I can't be in a position of saying expertly, well, this is what Arab culture looks like and this is what, inc what it inclines people to, to believe and, and act and do. I also recognize that I, it couldn't be you know, my voice saying these things. And that when I started out this project, I also recognized that I only had the vaguest understanding of what culture really is. I and mean, most of us don't. It's a topic which uh, anthropologists and sociologists have been working on for decades and have really refined it as to what it means and I think do have a very good understanding. But the vast majority of people, you know, we don't really get it. And we tend to use the word to mean lots of different things that really it isn't appropriate for. So I spent a lot of time in the book talking through, look, this is how you need to understand culture, and this is what it is, and this is what it isn't, and this is why you shouldn't stereotype and caricature, right? You've got to handle this very, very carefully. As I said, working with culture is like working with nitroglycerin. Uh, it can be very useful. It can be absolutely necessary, but it can also be very dangerous, and you can do a lot of damage with it if you don't treat it very carefully. And so that's why I set things up the way that I did. And of course, it's also one of the reasons why one aspect of the book that was very important to me is when I describe the cultural patterns that I think are affecting Arab behavior, I was very careful to not put it in my voice, to instead rely on the accumulated wisdom of generations of cultural anthropologists, of sociologists, of cultural psychologists, right? And to really make it clear to the reader, look, this isn't me. This isn't Ken Pollock saying, oh, Arabs are this way. These are, you know, huge numbers of people who are true experts in the subject, all of them saying, Westerners, Arabs, again, sociologists, anthropologists, all saying more or less the same thing, that these are the tendencies that we see in Arab culturally regular behavior. You mentioned um, a few minutes ago, you used the word underachievement. And I think that's really key because, you know, you know, the subtitle of your book is The Past, Present, and Future of Arab Military Effectiveness. And I think the implied, not necessarily the implied subtext, but the, what most readers who are interested in this topic will bring to the book is this sort of um, pre-existing notion that, while it's maybe too simple to say Arab militaries aren't very good, that you could perhaps accurately say, they're not as good as you would think that they would be, given you know material inputs and resources available and, and things of that nature. Uh, is that fair? And and if so, can you kind of flesh that out and and, and kind of qualify, um, quantify, I guess you know how good or how bad is has their performance been over the past fifty years? Sure. I mean, as you're pointing out, to simply say that they underachieve is a gross generalization, and again, it's one of the reasons why I've got fifteen cases in the book 
using different Arab militaries at different points in time, because I really did want to illustrate the range. You know, they go from the Libyan performance in Chad in 1987, which was absolutely miserable, one of the worst military performances of the last hundred years, to the Jordanian military in 1948, or to Hezbollah in 2006, or even Daesh, ISIS, uh, in 2014-2017, right? So there really is a range. Uh, the Jordanians in 48, ISIS, Hezbollah, uh, they are definitely better than the norm. Then at the other end, you've got the Libyans, you've got the Iraqis in 1980, right? Some really miserable performances. You're also right that, again, this is a very relative thing. I mean, let's understand that if you put the Iraqi army of 1980 on some magical battlefield against, uh, you know, know, the, the German army of 1866, the Prussian army of 1866, uh, you know, my, I wouldn't bet against the Iraqis. They've got a lot of problems. And just in terms of kind of soldiering skills and leadership and officering, the Prussians would definitely have advantages. But the technology of the Iraqi army of 1980 is quite good. And the Iraqis weren't horrendous at using that technology. They could fire their tanks, not nearly as well as American or uh, Israeli or German tank crews, but they could certainly man those tanks and and fight them in combat. Uh, So again, you know, it is a very relative statement. And in some ways, it gets to one of the main themes of the book that I think will be counterintuitive to people who hear me talking about the importance of culture, uh, which is that how much this is about relative time frames. Most people, when they hear the word culture, they think it's timeless. And one of the points that I I belabor in the book, because it's one of the main themes of cultural anthropologists, is that culture is always changing. And when I'm talking about Arab culture, I'm talking about the Arab culture of the post-1945 era. Right? And honestly, from 1945 to today, Arab culture has changed. And obviously, our politics and Arab economics have changed. They haven't necessarily changed in a revolutionary sense, but they have changed in very significant ways. And of greatest importance, Arab culture, politics, economics of today are completely different from the Arab politics, economics, and culture of the 7th century, right? So I often get people saying to me, well, okay, they're bad now, but, you know, they were great. They conquered the entire Mediterranean world back in the 7th century. Doesn't that disprove your contention? My point is no. The Arab culture of that era was completely different from Arab culture today. And that also sets up where I go in the book, which is to talk about the future and to say, you know, history is not destiny. Just because the Arabs had these very significant problems in the 20th century, and really that's the theme of the book, which is that what industrial age warfare called for from its participants, right? What you needed, the skill set that you needed to be really good at industrial age warfare was a set of skills that Arab society didn't produce in abundance, not the way that other societies necessarily produced it. But that's going to change in the future. In fact, it already is. Warfare is changing. Information age warfare may call for a very different set of skills than industrial age warfare did. And Arab society is changing. Their politics, their economies, their cultures are all changing and changing fairly dramatically 
uh, as a result of the information revolution. And so we shouldn't assume that just because Arab societies had a lot of problems generating military power during the industrial age, we shouldn't assume that that means that they're going to have the same set of problems in the information age. So I want to ask you a question that, I, you know, and I don't want to, um, you're a military analyst, so I, I don't want to force you to step too far beyond the bounds of what you're comfortable with. But um, given sort of current geopolitics, given the fact that um, the U.S. is partnered with probably the majority of the states that you, in some capacity, whether or not it's we're training them through security force assistance like Iraq, whether or not it's um, some sort of financial aid like, say, Egypt, um, or if it's some sort of basing partnership like Bahrain, um, is this, this then f- sounds like a problem. Uh, from an American perspective, that air, air militaries aren't as good as maybe they could be or should be. Um, is it perhaps, is there a flip side to that? Is it also stabilizing um, that, that air, you know, certain, say, leaders in, in, in particular Arab countries don't necessarily have a tool that they could um, disrupt kind of um, the, the regional stability in, in, in the Middle East? Yeah, uh, this is a great question, John. I think it, it's a critical one. Uh, Because both points that you're making are absolutely spot on. Um, Yeah, Americans for the past 30, 40 years have been trying to improve the military effectiveness of our allies in the Arab world and experiencing one frustration after another. And there has always been a sense, in particular among our political leaders, of, you know, by God, why do we have to defend them? Why can't they defend themselves? And, you know, we've been training these guys for 40 years. If we if they're not able to train them, uh, fight for themselves, if they're not able to defend themselves, that must be a problem with what we're doing. Right. And what the book is saying is more or less that's not really the case. Right. It's not the fault is not necessarily ours, although, again, I think you can make the, the case that we ought to have recognized those limitations and instead tried to partner with them in different ways to take advantage of what strengths they have and not try to get them to do things that really are beyond them. So, yes, there has been that problem. And there obviously is a desire to improve them in the future. And again, as we look to disengage from the Middle East, which is something that's been going on both under Obama and now under Trump, you know, one good answer would be to leave behind Arab allies who can defend themselves. And the problem that we're experiencing, it's a problem that the the book, I think, illustrates nicely, but it's something that I hear time and again from our military officers who are over there is these guys are not ready for this, right? They, They can't do it for themselves. And you're absolutely right. That led to a certain stability. For 25 or 30 years, from about 1945 to 1948, let's take it there because it's a perfect 25 years. From 1948 to 1973, there was a tremendous amount of conventional warfare in the Middle East because the truth is nobody understood the the military balance in the Middle East. They were still trying to figure it out. The Arabs thought they were pretty good. They thought they could use conventional force. And they tried it against the Israelis, against each other. And what they figured out during that period of time is actually we're not great at this, right? We can't really use it against the, we can't use it against the Israelis. They're much better. We can't even really use it against each other, right? Episodes like uh, Black September in Jordan in 1973 when the Syrians invade and it's just a mess, right? These things illustrate to the Arab leaders, you know what? We don't really have the conventional capabilities to do this kind of stuff. We need to remove 
invade, conventional invasion from our toolkit. Right? And worth noting that the two outliers, the two guys who don't get it, Muammar Gaddafi, Saddam Hussein, you know, fight losing war after losing war and wind up getting overthrown in the end because they don't ever get it. Everybody else figures it out, stops fighting. And as you're pointing out, that's a really important element of the relative stability that we see in the Middle East after 1973. And it's kind of a crazy statement because nobody thinks of the Middle East as being stable after 1973. My point is simply that you, it is stable compared to that previous period because everyone has more or less figured out, you know what, conventional warfare isn't the way to go. And I think that we're already seeing that the success of Hezbollah, that the success of Daesh or, or ISIS is starting to encourage different Arab leaders, certainly leaders of non-state groups, but I think perhaps in the future at some point some state leaders to say, you know, maybe things have changed enough that we actually can do this. Maybe we ought to try it. You know, if Hezbollah can have a certain degree of success against Israel, if Daesh can have a certain degree of success, at least against some of these American-trained allies, maybe not necessarily against the Americans, but certainly against their Iraqi allies, maybe we can use force. And to my mind, that sets up a real problem in the future where I do worry that this, these changes in Arab society, coupled with the changes in warfare, are going to uh, encourage different Arab leaders who are not happy with the status quo to start resorting to force in a way that they really haven't in the past 40, 50 years. You mentioned the Iraqi military under Saddam Hussein, the Libyan military under Muammar Gaddafi. Um, if you're grading on a curve, what are the sort of A grades that you would give out? Which, which states have sort of figured it out and, and, and done pretty well over the past generation in terms of modernizing reform and, and producing a generally effective military? Oh, boy. Well, if, if, you're, if an A grade ought to go to countries like you know the, the Wehrmacht, the IDF, the U.S. Army— I honestly can't put any of the Arab armies of the industrial age into that category. None of them even came close. Um, you know, I would argue, I argue in the book, I think the best, and, and I think the Israelis would certainly say the same thing. I've heard it from any number of them. They tend to give the Jordanians in 1948 the greatest credit. I think they're right. When you look at the Jordanians in 48, they're able to do some things in terms of combined arms, in terms of employing fire and maneuver, uh, in terms of just simple things like marksmanship and basic soldiering skills, uh, you know, innovative, aggressive, tactical leaders. Right? These are things that they do not badly um, and much better than most of the other Arab armies. But you know, So compared to the other Arab armies in most periods of time, the Jordanians are really quite good. If you compare them to most other militaries of the time, they're not even really average. They're kind of mediocre. You know, when you look at their tactical performance compared to, you know, the tactical performance of different armies uh, in the Korean War in 1950, in even the uh, Indo-Pak Wars, um, they're not nearly as good as those armies. People make a case for certain aspects of other armies. Uh, There's some Israelis who will tell you that the Syrian commandos in 1982 were a very formidable adversary. And again, I would agree with that. Were they as good as the Jordanians in 48? Hard to say. To some extent, you're comparing apples and oranges. They, again, did some things well, some things poorly. But again, they didn't come close 
to the best militaries of their day. They didn't really even hold a candle to just kind of some uh, average uh, armies of the time. And, you know, even Hezbollah, Daesh, I talked about them. You know, again, they have certain capabilities and they do certain things better than other Arab armies have done them. But, you know, I can't imagine any, you know, there were, what, about 1,500, maybe 2,000 Hezbollah fighters. I can't ima- imagine any American commander who would trade his or her brigade for that Hezbollah army, right? Again, they were definitely better than the vast majority of, of Arab militaries or Arab military forces of the same size. They certainly did some things that other Arab armies can't. But they're just not at the level of, you know, a, a well-trained American brigade or German brigade, for that matter. Probably not uh, at the level of a well-trained Russian brigade. Well, Ken, as much as I'd like to go on, I think we're going to wrap up there. Um, there's definitely a lot more we could have covered, especially in terms of implications or you know, sort of what this means for the future. A- and for U.S. policy in the region, the book does have a lot to say that could sort of, and I think you could argue should kind of inform the the U.S. government's approach to the region in the future. It is, um, it's a it's a very good book. It's quite clearly well researched, and for all its detail, it's it's also very easy to read. Um, and I'm sure it'll be worth reading for anybody with an interest in the Middle East. Uh, but with that, I, I want to say thanks for joining the MWI podcast. Thanks, John. Hey, thanks again for listening to the MWI podcast. One last thing, if you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could take just a second and leave a rating or give us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. It is a great way that you can help us reach new listeners interested in the types of topics that we feature on the podcast. Thanks again.